And we pray, dear Lord, not so much that we would find your word, but that your word would find us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is a great honor, I should say, is my microphone on? Good, all right. It's a great honor to be back in this pulpit. Uh, It's the second invitation, and since John Wesley only got invited three times, I'm two-thirds of the way there. But the last time I preached here was 1983, and I still have vivid memories of the Reverend Sam Cobb giving me instructions. He didn't care about what I preached on. What he cared about was how I mounted the pulpit. (laughs) And I have many such special memories of those days. Rennie Scott, Jim Hampson, Fitz Allison, all are names of friends that have shaped and guided my life over the years. And some of you may remember those names and have been shaped as well. Friendships and relationships matter. But before I look at the the verse that I want you to look at today, I have one more uh, uh, claim to credibility as I introduce myself to you, uh, particularly the Society of Cincinnati here today. Um, I need to tell you that I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and although we like to say Toledo, Michigan, there's still a little boundary dispute going on. And um, in fifth grade, we were asked to put in our yearbook our favorite figure in American history. And some of my classmates put down Abraham Lincoln, some put U.S. Grant, and various others. And then it got to mine, and I put Francis Marion. And no one in Toledo, Michigan knew who he was. I was safe. I'm the Dean President for all of two more weeks at Trinity School for Ministry. A school up outside of Pittsburgh began in 1976 and we bought an old grocery store in a defunct town and had nothing but a lot of trust that God loved us. And now arguably we're one of the largest Anglican seminaries in the world and seeking to touch people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to shape and form leaders that are going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'll let you in on a little secret. They actually believe the physical resurrection happened. (laughs) And I know I can say that here because I know you do as well. And I pray if any of you are in the congregation this morning that are still questioning or doubting, that today's gospel words will help you. Relationships matter. And they matter because they shape our lives as we seek to confront disorder and confusion. We're all in the same boat. We're trying to figure out what makes sense of what God is doing in this world and in our specific lives. My life will be overtuned in two weeks when I step down from my leadership role. 
And I'm wondering what's coming next. My wife asks me, and I say, golf. <laughs> but I suspect there's some other things going to happen. And that's why I want to point to a, a verse in the gospel today that very few people ever get to. It's verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now the context of this verse is Jesus appearing again and meeting his disciples, or at least seven of them. And scholars of this passage get bothered because this chapter, chapter 21, seems to come after everything's ended. So why is there another chapter? And why are the disciples fishing back in Galilee after being commissioned by Jesus and baptized in the Spirit? There's also a reference to his appearing for a third time where he's already appeared three times in the previous chapter. So what's that all about? Scholars, because they tend to be skeptical, say, well, obviously this is just a postscript that was added on to the gospel. But I, for one, don't believe that. It's possible. But I think if we look at the gospel of John and what he's bearing witness to, we realize that he was on about something else and that there's a theme that controls the whole gospel. At the very end of chapter 20 and beginning in chapter 21 where we are today, we read this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are written about in this book. And these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And now in chapter 21, what does Jesus do or what does John do in this account? He goes on to give another sign and another miracle. That amazing breakfast with seven disciples right after he's teaching them, teaching them about the provision that God has for them with that huge draft of 153 fish. Quite a fishing trip. But he's teaching them about God's love and provision for their lives. And I want to pause there for a moment to say if there's anyone here in this congregation this morning that's questioning whether God has provided for them, please know the breakfast awaits you. He's feeding you and he cares for you even when you can't figure out what's going on. And finally, as they break bread at that breakfast, their eyes are opened to his presence, very similar to what Luke talks about in the road to Emmaus. Suddenly their hearts were warmed, and they could feel his presence within them. But in this passage, Jesus is hunkering down on Peter after breakfast is finished. Now, why Peter? Peter was the one who betrayed Jesus. 
He was the one who just moments before had jumped out of the boat in shame and humiliation. When the beloved disciple had announced to him that it was Jesus. On the surface of things, Peter does not seem to be a logical choice for investing time in leadership formation. God is not always logical about leadership formation. I served for 19 years in parishes and sent many people to seminary to train and form for leadership in the church. And then I joined a seminary 25 years ago as their faculty and have been there ever since. So I think a lot about what makes good leaders There's some young men in this congregation this morning who may have never thought of themselves as a great leader. But they will be. If they're fed the word of God and their dreams are nurtured and encouraged, life will give them the testing. But we as the people of God need to give them the tools to learn how to be leaders and it may not be the people we expect. God is not always logical about whom he chooses to form as leaders. Abraham was a great leader, yes, but conniving in the way he lied about Sarah. Jacob was manipulative with his brother. Moses was impulsive and ducked responsibility. David was lascivious and immoral in the way he treated Bathsheba and many of his other wives. This is hardly what you'd see in a headhunter's group of leaders. Wouldn't be the people you'd go after, would it be? But God does. Character virtue is not easily apparent as you look at these people. But one thing that you do look at is if you look deeply into these biblical accounts is they have a heart and they have a passion. And when God goes to sort them out, they're ready to be redirected. They're ready to be redirected. We need to be ready to be redirected. They accept calling and responsibility, the great leaders, and they also accept redirection from God. Now, I want to share with you this morning a story about my granddaughter. I've got 10 grandchildren. I'm proud of all of them. But the youngest, of course, at age three, is just sheer adorable. And she's cute as a button and occasionally is starting to grow into the two-slash-three-year-old disease. The biblical name for it is sin. But this adorable little three-year-old and this joyful beauty is contingent on many factors. And namely, the factors of whether she gets what she wants to eat and can go wherever she wants to go. And when we had a recent visit, 
We watched one morning when breakfast and the morning did not go as she planned. And her father did not let her run from the table. Unrestrained. And the scene that followed was pretty ugly. As her father took her to wash her hands and face, and he gently did a redirect of her morning. The screaming and the shrieking grew more hideous by the moment. And I was very proud of my son as he guided her lovingly but firmly. He did a redirect. She had to go where she did not want to go. But I want to ask you this morning, where do you not want to go? Jesus is meeting the seven disciples in the breakfast meeting with a fundamental call to ask them to think back about what's happened to them and to evaluate where they're going. He was doing a redirect, especially in the case of Simon Peter, having demonstrated the provision of God in this beautiful draft of fishes. Jesus is asking them to think about their world, and he's forcing them as disciples to the fundamental problem of a world that doesn't make sense to them. So now I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit in this morning's sermon. How many people in this congregation this morning thinks their life makes perfect sense? I'm, I'm looking for a hand. And, and I want the mental health officials to notice who raises their hand. The world doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense, and Jesus wants them to face into that. It doesn't make sense from their perspective. First of all, it doesn't make sense. One option would be to look at it that um, everything can just be managed by human reason, and if we face the disorder of our lives with um, a good sense of rationality and using our reason to control things, everything will be in perfect order. That works real well, doesn't it? When we look at the tragedies in Haiti that you all are ministering to, the military junta, which has just locked up once again Asang Shushi, the Tigrayans in Ethiopia who are causing ethnic devastation, to their fellow citizens in Ethiopia. And then there's Putin in Ukraine, slaughtering thousands. No, the option of trying to think we can reason our way through this, let alone COVID and everything else, doesn't fit the facts. It's not a reasonable world, and we can't control it by being more reasonable. I've watched people in the last two years of this pandemic try to control things with their reason, and it doesn't end up in a pretty way. It ends up making as much sense as my granddaughter shouting and screaming. It's noisy, but it doesn't address the problem. Option two, 
that the world is inherently irrational and that we have no control over our lives, so therefore we ought to just go for it and be autonomous little soldiers that are hedonistic and we enjoy the day. Eat, drink, and be merry. And when I'm in Charleston visiting and see all the wonderful food you have down here, that's a pretty attractive option. But like my days when I used to read Ayn Rand and John Galt used to say, everything is about coming from the heart and pursuing your passion and pursuing your own giftedness. Well, I tried that and, and, and I found out that it was just plain lonely. I needed others. I needed to be part of something more significant. So we're at option three. Jesus speaks to Peter. And he asks him, do you love me unconditionally, agape? And Peter responds that he loves Jesus with brotherly love, phileo. So he says, all right, Peter, feed my sheep. But the command is not one of telling him to strive nor achieve any meaning or understanding. Quite the contrary. He's asking him to live out the divine love in human flesh. And he's calling Peter to do the same. Thus, Jesus says, life has meaning. But it's not the way you perceived it when you were young and thought you were in control of it all. Now it has meaning because the chief shepherd has come to be in relationship with his disciples. The meaning and rationality of existence is not obvious to human beings. But in this third option, the meaning is obvious to the God who is our creator, he's our redeemer, and he's the one who's changing us and sanctifying us. He is doing a redirect in our lives, and a vigorous one. Again, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This teaching, obviously, is a prediction of Peter's martyrdom. But it's much more than that. And his words are alive for us today. The words have many layers of meaning. But something that John was being intentional about saying to us as the people of God. He contrasts the arrogance and the control of youth with the wisdom and the surrender of age. The clear suggestion is that the child thinks he or she knows what the meaning of the world around them is. And I have to think of my little dear Louisa, granddaughter, who thinks she's got everything figured out at the age of three, and she thinks she controls it all. But life will quickly teach her that she's not as much in control of things as she is, thinks she is. And in fact, she's in control of very little. But hopefully she will come to learn that she does have some choice. And the most important one of all is to be in a real and open relationship with Jesus. And as she struggles to find out the meaning that God alone fully understands, that's her hope, and that's her meaning in life. As the years progress, John says that Peter learned that he was not in control of what happened in his world. 
but he was able to make choices out of his relationship and his calling with the Savior. He accepted the redirect. So he challenged him to be part of his mission. Jesus invited Peter to surrender all and to accept the redirect. And so Peter did. Not all at once. And those of us who've been walking with Jesus could hardly say we've accepted it all. But what I want to say to you who are struggling, keep going. He's doing it in you. He's redirecting you. He's changing you in ways that you don't even see and understand. We have a wonderful opportunity to engage in his mission. And it will take us places where we can't imagine we ever would be. 39 years ago when I preached from this pulpit, I had no idea that I would be standing before you again in a role as a dean president, in a role of an opportunity to foster and shape young men and women in the leadership of the church, informing them in the word of God. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask selfishly your personal prayers for our seminary, Trinity School for Ministry. Because we want to shape the Peters of this world. We want to help in God's redirect. We want to give them the rich and the deep power of the word of God and training in ministry formation. Please pray with us that we do that. And you might want to send us some young people. I'm seeing some that are probably junior high school kids in this room right now. Send them to seminary. Encourage their call to walk with Christ as leaders of his band. And yeah, you can send a lot of money too. But let's let the Lord redirect. And let's let the Lord use us as the people of God. And change the world around us through the witness that we have to a God who loves us, nurtures us, and keeps surprising us with these redirects. Our life will be redirected. Mine will be redirected in two weeks. And I'm looking forward to what God has next. In all these years, some 46 years of walking with Christ, there has not been a year that didn't surprise me. And those of you who are older know what I'm talking about. Let's keep being surprised. And let's Jesus redirect us to his purposes and his mission. Let us pray. Father God, we are like little Louisa. We keep shrieking and howling at the things that happen and continue to happen. (coughs) Teach us, Lord, to accept the redirect. Call us to your life. And give us the grace and the power to accept sacrifice as we serve you. 
not knowing where it's all going other than to be with you. But we accept that redirect, Lord, this morning and in the days to come. Redirect us even as you did Peter many years ago. And let your kingdom be manifest through your people and your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.